Okay. Good morning. Good morning, everyone, and and wonderful to see you, and a wonderful blessing. And I, uh, I truly hope. Um, topic of this morning is is going to be an interesting one. Nevertheless, I do hope you're going to be encouraged. It's going to be the purpose of it. We've been speaking about heaven, and the series that we're dealing with is the series of heaven and hell. We've spoken about heaven and we'd spoke initially and, and made some clarity with regards to that is God's dwelling place. That was the first message on it. Um, the second message related to it was that it is a future home. It's a future abode of some. And the third message that we did on it is related to citizens of heaven. And the question generally asked of whether or not you are a citizen of heaven because you can know that now. You can know that now. The next three were meant to be on hell, but at the same time, there is this point at which consideration needs to be given on the transition. And that is the transition is what we're going to be dealing with this morning. We're going to be dealing with the topic of death. And again, it's going to end up with an encouragement, I'm sure, but it's important to understand it. There's a lot of important topics in the Bible But there is one topic to which the gospel itself pertains its urgency. One topic that the gospel, if it's not received or believed on time, will usher an individual into that final hell, out of which there is no hope. So there is hope on this side of life. And there is continual hope on this side of life, but not when that imminent event occurs. It's a topic that, aside from the rapture, is going to one day imminently, uh, everybody is going to experience. And they're going to be experiencing that imminently. Um, It's not a pleasant topic. And it's difficult to imagine, though, a topic more important than death. It's not one that we... Isn't it interesting? We don't speak about it. We don't like to speak about it because it's distasteful. There's something about it that is uncomfortable. And rightly so. It should be uncomfortable. Yet it is probably the most important topic that you could ever possibly consider. What happens at death? What happens after death? Is there an extinction? Or is there something that goes beyond? Death is the means, according to the scripture, through which people will realise their, their final state. Strangely enough, many people know that they will die, but live as though uh, death somehow doesn't apply to them. Um, speaking about the nature of death, there was a bold preacher who once told the congregation, someday every member of this parish will die. The congregation was stunned, all except for one man who laughingly said, I don't belong to this parish. (laughs) Death is a separation. And death is a separation. It separates loved ones. Death brings... Uh, to the departed, the permanent end for which they lived. That's the part that's very important to be able to understand. To those who sought the forgiveness of God, to those who sought after God and sought the forgiveness of God, them, them, they have lived their life or desiring that even at the end of their days, they shall receive the reward of that. They will have that communion with God. They will be and dwell with God and they will be with him and rejoicing in a place with all the heavenly angels 
and the saints in eternity. But to those who despised God, those who desire not the knowledge of his ways till the end of their life, they shall be separated from God and as separated as far as absolute darkness is from light and have their solitary dwelling in hell for all eternity. And it's a solitary dwelling. It's a solitary dwelling. Contrary to popular belief, there's no fellowship in hell. Um, there's no revelry. There's no eternal parties. And we'll speak of that more in the next two weeks that we deal with the, um, the, the nature of it. What's certain about death? There's one thing certain about death, and that is that it only affects the living. It only affects the living. What's uncomfortable about death is that it can occur at any time. My desire this morning is to explain death related to four particular elements. And contrary to the nature of its subject, my real desire is to encourage you. It is to encourage you. I've got, I've got no intention of leaving you miserable at the end of this sermon this morning. So please, stay with me until the end. But it's really important because this is um, the ultimate problem of life. But as it is the ultimate problem of life, God has not left us without the ultimate solution to life. So the four topics that we're going to be looking at this morning is one, the origin of death, two, the effect of death, three, the victory over death, and four, the end of death in a very real way. The first, the origin of death. We found that in that first passage we see there in Romans chapter 5. Verses 12 to 18. We'll just read from verse 12, though. Paul writes here and he says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, so death passed upon all men, for all have sinned. Here you've got an interesting indicator that there was an origin to sin. That sin actually came into the world, oh sorry, that death actually came into the world, that it wasn't there originally. And it came in through sin. As by one man, sin entered into the world and death by sin. Gives us a hint that death wasn't part of the original plan of God. And this is completely contrasting um, the world's view on the idea of death. The world doesn't see death as an aberration. Um, And naturally, because for as long as man has been in the world, so has death been in the world. For as long as man has lived, death has been there, a part of man. Strangely, life is inexplicable to the world. So when I was doing my studies on this particular topic, I was looking for a definition for life. What is the scientific definition of life? Can science actually even define life? And I found something really, really fascinating. Science can't. Science, can't, science doesn't have a definition for life because science deals with material and life doesn't give an answer to the material aspect of things. There's nothing in science that can show and demonstrate how we can be actually alive. They'll usually use phrases like, well, if it moves on its own accord, then it must be alive. Okay? But then you'd have to be asking the question about trees and those sort of things. Well, they do obviously move because they grow, okay? But there's a, there's a change in them, all right? Um, so we had to turn to philosophy with regards to the definition of life. 
And philosophy has a whole bunch of different definitions with regards to life and nothing seems to come together. So, interestingly, however, all of them have an answer for death. All of them have an answer with regards to, to death. They seem to find that definition and Mortimer Adler, the editor of the great books, states it simply that death is a change which only living matter undergoes. Death is a change which only living matter undergoes. So there is nothing other than living matter that can die. So only that which is alive can die, in short. So even though the definition of can be found, the origin of death remains a curiosity. As far as the world is concerned, death is a part of life, as I I mentioned. And that would be true if it was not for a competing idea that better fits with reality. What do I mean by better fits with reality? Well... All people in the world have in them an innate desire in life to live forever. It's something that we all seem to have intuitively within us. We have an innate desire for immortality. We we can't even conceive of the entire concept of, of death. That seems foreign to us. A matter of fact... Anyone who has ever had a loved one pass away and witness that individual there, you recognise and see that they're not there anymore. This, it's just it's empty. And it leaves us all with this same common feeling. And it's a common feeling that we can only regard as surreal. There's something surreal about death. Something that within us we recognise is unnatural not natural if it was natural then it could be accepted if it was natural as far as you know food going cold while it's sitting outside you can accept that you understand that that makes perfect sense but death doesn't make any sense there's something within us that we can't even comprehend with regards to it it seems unnatural we cope with it we deal with it we recognize that we have to deal with it because that's seems to be just a part of life but the world says death is natural and has always been yet the bible says that death had a beginning and will have an end death came into the world and there will be a time where there will be no death according to the bible death is unnatural man was created never to die man was created to live forever in perfect fellowship with god Immortality is naturally how we feel about life. And it seems to this day that the ultimate search for most people in this world is a search for immortality. A search for immortality. A book written by Klaus Schwab called The Fourth Industrial Revolution is one of those that actually seeks after immortality. He's the, he's the founder of the World Economic Forum, the head of the Great Reset that's underway at present. Part of his desire is immortality this is what they desired michael jackson searched for immortality he believed that he would never die and he lost it at the age of 50 years there are many who search for it walt disney has got himself in some sort of uh, frozen state in the hope that maybe his brain can be can be revived and lived see they think that because we live in a material world they think that there is something material about life but there's, science has already sort of demonstrated there's nothing material about life. Cannot explain how life functions, how life even begins. Can explain death, 
but we can't explain life. But what we do have within this world is a desire to escape from death. There is a way to escape from death, but it's not the way the world thinks. So we need to look at the original concept of death. We see that mentioned in the Bible. Turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. Book of Beginnings has the beginning of life and it also has the beginning of death. Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2 and we'll have a look from uh, three verses here, verses 15 to 17. Lord had already created man, the man Adam. Adam means man. And there in verse 15 it says, And the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Edom to dress it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. Lest, um, for thou shalt surely die. Hang on, I lost my, my place. For in the day thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. This is Adam. This is Adam. This is the first man, the first individual that was ever a direct creation of God. He was made of the dust of the ground. And it's fascinating. Science has actually discovered that the elements that are in the dust of the ground are the same 17 elements that we are composed of. I find that really, really interesting. Did you know that science actually got to a particular level that it believes that it can actually create man from the dust of the ground? And it did. It did. So God, we can now create man. We can do exactly what you can do. You did it first, but we can do it too now. So they challenged God and they put, it, they put the challenge forward to him. They said, right, we're going to create man. So they grabbed the dust and they started. And God said, well, stop. Why? Get your own dust. God created man and he did so from the dust of the ground man was created as a gardener and he worked as that endeavour man was created to work a lot of people think that work is a result of the fall no, no beloved we were built to work we were made to work that's why we're only happy when we're actually being productive and we're working when we're not working because we think that that's the better way of living. No, you're miserable. Most people die not long after their retirement. Most men die not long after their retirement. So it's not unusual. We always have to be actively engaged. We're made to work. He could sustain his life with the fruit of every tree in the garden but one. It was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In Hebrew, the tree of knowledge is known as the tree of conscience. The tree of conscience with knowledge. Each one of us have a conscience. We have an understanding of good and evil. We recognise it. We know it within us. And it's because of that first endeavour. God said, for in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. There are several forms of death in the Bible. And that's what we're going to be talking about with this origin of, of death. And God was here speaking of the most important element of death, and that was spiritual death. That's what God was referring to when he spoke to Adam, when he said, in the day thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. He wasn't speaking about physical death. That's another form of death. Okay, there are three. There are three forms of death in the scriptures. This is the first one and the most important one. 
This is the one through which Jesus Christ actually came to reconcile. He came to bridge this death, and that was the spiritual death. This is the death that separates the spirit of man from the spirit of God. This is the death that alienates man from God. It's the death that makes God a stranger to man. It's the death that has man unable to see the plain evidence of his existence. It literally blinds him to God. And only those who diligently seek him shall find him. And when they do, they wonder how it was that they never saw him before. I don't know about you, if that's your experience, that's certainly been my experience. Completely ignored God, didn't know who God was, didn't really care for the reality of God until I had challenged, been challenged by that young girl and just say, open your eyes and look around. Couldn't believe the simplicity of her argument. Couldn't believe it. And it sticks with me until this day. I was only 17 at the time. And now the moment that I actually chose to believe God's existence because I'd already done my own research recognising I sought after God. I diligently sought him. And the Lord rewarded me with the recognition that he must be. And once I committed my life to it, now I look and I think, how can you not see? How can a person be a doctor and not see the reality of God? How can you be a scientist and not see the reality of God? How can you be a physicist and not recognise the reality of God? How? How can you be involved in the most intellectual of pursuits and not see the reality of God? How can you be a philosopher and not recognise the reality of God? How? It's astounding that the most intelligent people in the world cannot see the reality of God that is right before their eyes. I praise God some are. Praise God some are. Some are opening their eyes to the truth of it. We stand on the shoulders of great men who believed in the reality of God, men like Isaac Newton, men like Galileo, Copernicus and the like. They believed in the reality of God. They understood that God is. Now we've turned away from that. This is the death that God sees as infinitely more severe than physical death. It's the death that is also known as the fall of mankind. It's the fall of mankind. It's found in Genesis chapter 3. We can actually have a look at that unfortunate event as it unfolds. Have a look. Genesis chapter 3. We'll look at verse 4 to 6. There's a serpent in the garden. The serpent is identified as Satan himself. In verse 4, the serpent said unto the woman, You shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. This is the event known as original sin. This is original sin. It was original because this is where sin first entered into the world and death by sin. It was original because the first couple on earth committed this sin. It was original because the sin nature would now be inherited through all generations following. This is original because it didn't just affect the man and the woman. It affected every other living creature on earth. It affected creation itself. And this is where you get an understanding here of the value and the importance of man. 
This universe, the entire universe, was created for the existence of man. Man isn't the pinnacle of God's creation. Man is the purpose of God's creation. And that's even understood scientifically. Science tells you about the anthropic principle, how this this entire universe seems to be uniquely created for the existence of mankind. Interesting, isn't it? Science recognises it, and yet we sort of think that we're some sort of a, you know, maybe a backward idea, maybe an idea in the back of God's mind, but not necessarily the purpose of it. The very fact that the entire universe is slowly dying into what scientists refer to as a heat death, an ultimate heat death. It's the law of entropy, where it began at a certain level, perfectly ordered, and now is moving into rapid disorder. Okay, it's the law of entropy. And they speak about a heat death. We began with a big bang, we're eventually going to end up with a heat death. A big crunch is going to come at the end of it. Okay, that's what science believes. All right, and that's what they see. Why? All because of the sin of man. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for all have sinned. Death, therefore, had a beginning. It did not exist before man's sin. It had an origin by sin. Charles Spurgeon wrote of it this way. Death is an alien in the world. It did not enter the original design of the unfallen creation, but its intrusion mars and spoils the whole. It is no part of the great shepherd's flock, but it is a wolf that cometh to kill and to destroy. Certain it is that as far as this present creation is concerned, death is not God's invited guest, but an intruder whose presence mars the feast. That's that's Spurgeon's definition or understanding of the origin of death. It came into the world. You see, we all have a natural inclination that death seems unnatural. The Bible is the only place where that natural inclination has an answer. It's the only place where it has an answer. Death seems unnatural because it is unnatural. Man was not created to die. As by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin. So death passed upon all men for all have sinned. As a result, therefore, we fear death. We fear death. And so we should. So we should. The effect of death. The second point this morning, Romans 5.20. Therefore, as by the offence of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation. Even so, by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. There is something fascinating within this one verse here. And the fascinating element of this one verse is that on the one hand, you see, God doesn't leave us ever without encouragement. He doesn't ever leave us just in this dreary state of mourning and sorrow. Okay? And that's why I can't do it even in this message. We're speaking about a very, very difficult subject, and that is of death. But I can't leave you without being encouraged. God encourages you just in this verse. He says, therefore, by the offence of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation. That is the most dreary, the most sorrowful expression that you can see in the scriptures because we know what that condemnation relates to. We know that it relates to hell. We know that it relates to that eternal, everlasting abode that will be the misery of many of mankind. 
Yet, he goes on and says, even so, by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. This is a gift that sets itself to be received, willfully received, or willfully rejected. You can receive it willingly, or you can reject it willingly. The choice is yours. The fearful aspect is that first part. Therefore, as by the offence of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation. Hebrews 9.27 says, As it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this, the judgment. The judgment. The sin of mankind has placed all of mankind in the greatest of dangers. And death is seen as the ultimate enemy for man. Preaching on 1 Corinthians 15.26, Spurgeon also wrote, Death is well called an enemy, for it does an enemy's work toward us. For what purpose doth an enemy come but to root up, to pull down and to destroy? It's interesting because the cultures of the world, the cultures of the world throughout history, whether it's the Mesopotamian culture, the Sumerian culture, the Babylonian culture, the Persian culture, the ancient Egyptian culture, all of them, all of them have negative connotations when it comes to death. All of them do. None of them have anything positive to say with respect to death. Death, in their view, doesn't lead to something good. And death, in their view, was never, ever seen as uh, some sort of an evaporation, some sort of an extinction. Why? Because the ancient cultures already recognised and understood that we are made immortal. We are created immortal and death is a transition. They identified that and they recognised that. And I had a whole bunch of quotes that I was going to bring, but it was taking up too much of the sermon, so I had to delete them. Sorry. Sorry. And I had to make sure that my wife was happy because she hates all those quotes. So There's something actually interesting with regards to this as well. All of them, all of these ancient cultures, see the final resting place not in a grave, but in the belly of the earth. I wonder where they got that idea from. I wonder where they got that idea from. What we see in these writings are partial remembrances of the truth that the Bible lays out. Yet none but the Hebrew people had the answers for the soul. Only the Hebrew nation had the oracles of God. And only they knew the Messiah that would come to free men from sin. The Jews believed this by faith. Their sacrifices offered were sacrifices of innocence. Their sacrifices were offered because of the blood of the innocent party was that which would potentially redeem them. They were looking forward to the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. That's what the Hebrew people understood. They knew that a Messiah would come. How did they know that? As God told them in Genesis chapter 3. Not long after the sin, not long after the fall of man, God had provided already a remedy, a remedy. To the world, death is an enemy and it is an enemy in every single way. To the ancient world, death was seen as an enemy, the ultimate enemy. And it was an enemy that they spent their life preparing for. Can you believe that? They actually spent their life preparing for death. 
Why? Because they knew that death would come. Today we're distracted from it. Completely distracted from the entire concept of death. We're entertained to death. We're amused to death. We have time taken away from us to rarely ever, if ever, consider of death until we come face to face with it in the, in the, in the death of a loved one. That's generally the only time we really spend thinking about death. Yet the ancient world spoke about it continually and they prepared for it consistently. They recognised that death was an enemy, an ultimate enemy. Spurgeon goes on, he speaks about death as well. He speaks about it as a subtle foe lurking everywhere, even in the most harmless things. He meets us both at home and abroad. At the table, he assails men in their food. At the fountain, he poisons their drink. He waits for us in the streets and he sizes us in our beds. He rideth on a storm at sea and he walks with us when we are on our way upon the solid land. For from the summit of the Alps, men have fallen to their graves and in the deep places of the earth where the miner goes down to find the precious, precious ore. Death is a subtle foe and with noiseless footfalls follows close at our heels when least we think of him. It is imminent and it will come upon all. There are three forms of death. We spoke about the first form, a separation of man from God. This is spiritual death and it affects all people. This is man alienated from God and we find the concept difficult to grasp with regards to God and that is an evidence that we are spiritually separated from him. Romans 1.21 tells us how this happened. It says, Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations and their foolish heart was darkened. This is that death that is evident in all of mankind, this spiritual death. Ephesians 2.1 says that we were dead in trespasses and sins. Ephesians 2.5 says that we were dead in sins. Have a look at what Jesus said about it in John chapter 5. Look at John chapter 5. Turn your Bibles there and give consideration to it. Because he, says about, he speaks about it in a very interesting way. John chapter 5 verse 25. Jesus simply says there, Verily, verily, John chapter 5, verse 25. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God and they that hear shall live. Clearly, it was not the physically dead that could hear the gospel and live. It was not the physically dead that could hear the gospel and live. Jesus referred to the spiritually dead, those who are dead in trespasses and sins. Remember that passage when he, when he tells these other disciples to come and follow him. And the disciple says, Master, let me first go and, and, and bury my father. And what does Jesus say? How does he reply? Let the dead bury their dead. Right? Jesus understood that we are first and foremost spiritually dead. This affects all of mankind. That's the first death. The first death is a spiritual death where all of mankind is alienated separated from God. The second death is the separation of the soul from the body. This is what we recognise as the physical death. Okay? And this death affects most people. 
I've got to qualify it, you know, because it doesn't affect all, obviously. Um, Elijah didn't see death. Enoch didn't see death. And all those at the rapture yet to come will not see death, right? So I've got to be accurate. I've got to be accurate. This is the separation of the, the body from the soul or the soul from the body, physical death. It's a death that awaits you and I otherwise. The separation, the physical death. Have a look at 2 Corinthians. Actually, no, stay, stay, because I'm going to be getting you to turn to some other ones. I'll read this one for you. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6 to 8 says, Therefore, we are always confident, knowing that whilst we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Paul is making it really clear that his desire is to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Well, how can you be absent from the body and present with the Lord? That's the soul. The soul is going to be present. That's the real you. Your, your soul is who you are. You are not your body. Okay? You can work your body as much as you like to make it look like an Adonis, but you are not your body. There's people that glorify in their bodies so much that they think this is who they are. It's not who you are. It's not who you are at all. You are the soul that uses that body as a tabernacle, a transport vehicle, if you will. But Revelation 6 to 9 speaks of seeing souls of them that were slain for the word of God. They had not received their bodies. They were the souls of all those who were slain, killed for the word of God. But possibly the clearest passage relating to this type of separation is in Luke chapter 16. And that's where I want you to turn. Luke chapter 16. It has as its example one man in heaven and the other in hell immediately after death. Luke chapter 16, take our text from verse 19. Luke 16 and verse 19. Jesus speaking with respect to this, he says that there was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus which was laid at his gate full of sores and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And in hell he lift up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Clearly, both bodies are buried and remain in their graves. But the soul, fully conscious, and alert, even able to observe and to plead, as seen as the dialogue following, demonstrates the second form of death, and that is the separation of the soul from the body, what we refer to as physical death. That's why even, you know, when you go to some funerals these days, and they're, and they're, and they're, they're, not, they're not Christian funerals, they're pagan funerals. And I really haven't seen one funeral, I haven't been to one funeral. Okay. So the world believes that there is going to be an ultimate extinction at, at the end of your life, right? The world believes that your life is going to just extinguish, evaporate, just like that, poof. Okay, it's gone. You're a material being, you're a material being only. 
The fascinating thing that I find about it is why does every single pagan funeral refer to them as going to a better place? That's a bit that I don't get. How can you be going to a better place if you are just a material thing? I mean, you don't hear any celebrant, or I don't know if that's what you call them, um, anybody that's leading those possession, those, those possessions saying, well, um, so we're going to bury him, but you know that that's, that's his body. Uh, well, that's him. That's, that's him. And uh, we're going to put him in the grave. It doesn't exist anymore. Or we're going to burn him or whatever they're going to do with him. Um, but, uh, but look, you know, um, don't bother looking for him because he doesn't exist anymore. Um, don't bother thinking that he's looking down on you because he doesn't exist anymore. Um, I mean, how do they comfort the people that are left over? They always try and comfort them by encouraging them that they're in a better place, you know, which is really astounding. And it's contrary to every other ancient religious system. Every religious system in the world today, none believe that death is final. Buddhism to a degree, but not even it, because you've got this constant reincarnation. Notice, what do we believe naturally? We are immortal, don't we? Speak about the cycle of life. It permeates every single religious system in the world. So, this is that that second form of death, physical death. There is a third. There is a third. The third death is separation eternal, also known as the second death, that is hell. And it affects many. So the first death, spiritual, affects all. The second death, physical, affects most. And the third death, the separation eternal, affects many. This is the reason Jesus came and died. This is why we are to preach the gospel to all people. This is the most horrible of all. This is known as the second death and it's referred to four times in the book of Revelation. Revelation 2, 11, Revelation 20, verse 4, Revelation 20, verse 6. And Revelation 21, verse 8, let's have a look at Revelation 21, verses 5 to 8. Revelation 21, verses 5 to 8. Last book of your Bible, second last chapter. Revelation 21, verse 5. There's a wonder on this, there's a joy in this, there's a blessing in this, and yet at the same time there is... There is such a sorrow and such a heartache. Revelation 21 verse 5. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said unto me, It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. And he that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and liars, all liars, shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. All three definitions of death in the Bible, we see separation. Separation as the effect of death. That is the effect of death. The spirit separated from God. The soul separated from the body. The soul and the body separated in hell. We all suffer the first. Most will suffer the second. 
And far, far too many will suffer the third. One is too many that suffers the third. What we see here is that death is the greatest enemy of mankind and death takes us whether we are ready or not. But there is a way. There is a way. There is a way to gain victory over death and especially the second death. The third definition of biblical death is the worst transition of all. Yet it is 100% avoidable. That's the bit that's hard to deal with. That's the bit that I find hard to deal with. The second death is 100% avoidable. Part of it has to do with you and I. Part of it has to do with you and I. We sorrow for the lost, but what are we doing? We sorrow for the lost, but what are we doing? What do we spend our time doing? I can't share the gospel to that person anymore. I've got to check my Instagram feed. You know? I can't say a word to that individual anymore because, hey, I might miss somebody liking something. You know? We're pathetically distracted. We really are. But this is the victory over death. And I share it with you that you might be able to see it and that you might be able to be encouraged and share the world to the world. Romans chapter 5, verse 12 Paul again says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for all have sinned. This is the state of all of mankind today. It was through the prime representative of mankind, a man made perfect, but with a will that was free to obey or disobey God, that man fell, and man inherited that sin nature. A lot of people sit there saying, you know, but hang on, how come I've got to cop the penalty for what some other guy did? You know, I mean, why can't I pay for my own sin? You know, well, why do I have to be, well, two reasons. Number one, he was a prime representative of all of mankind. We were in Adam when he fell. All right? We were in Adam already when he fell. So we are a part of him. So we, we inherit that sin nature. And so death passed upon all men for all have sinned. And the second part of it is, do you really think you would have done any better? Yeah, I know, he only had one command to follow. But would you have done anything better? Knowing what you know about your life, knowing the temptations that you continually struggle with, would you have done any better? I don't think anybody would have done any better. But he also had the freedom to obey or disobey God and there is no man alive that believes the freedom to make choices is a bad thing. God made man in his own image and he made him free to love God or to reject God. Unlike other religions, you are not forced to love God. It's not at the point of a sword or the nozzle of a gun that has you fall in love with God. It's Romans 5.19. It's Romans 5.19. Have a look. It says, for as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offence might abound. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. That as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. Notice it says, Moreover, the law entered that the offence might abound. 
That doesn't refer to sin abounding, as I've heard some people preach and teach. The law didn't end so that sin would abound. The law didn't end where you put a sign on the grass saying, keep off the grass so everybody just jumps on the grass. That's not the purpose of the law. The law entered that the offence might abound. In other words, the offence of sin might be made evident. That the offence of sin might be made evident. You're driving at 150 kilometres an hour. You think that's completely normal speed until you see a sign that says it's supposed to be 80. The offence of that law, the breaking of that law, now triggers within your mind. The offence might abound. That's what that refers to. That was the purpose of the law. But it was Christ. It was Christ who was promised to come the moment the curse was pronounced. The moment that man had sinned, there would be one who would take away the sin of the world. Moreover, the law entered that the offence might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. That as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. One man's disobedience, many were made sinners. The obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Pretty simple math, isn't it? It's not complicated, not difficult. It's pretty simple. Paul wrote in Galatians 4, he said, But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Paul identifies that there would be a time coming. The Jews had waited for this time. Mankind had waited for the time of the coming of the Messiah. Waited for that time. There was an understanding that sin could potentially be forgiven, but not without a Messiah, not with somebody taking the place of our sin, not without somebody taking our death upon him his own self. It was Aristotle who actually wrote the question. And he said, I understand and know that it is for God to forgive sins, but frankly, I don't see how. How? You needed the penalty paid for. The debt had to be paid for. God can't just forgive sins just, just like that. There is a cost to sin. Just like today, there is a cost to crime. The society pays the price of of crime. Everybody pays the price of a crime. The shopkeeper pays the price of somebody coming in and stealing his goods. There's a cost associated with it. It needs to be paid for. It needs to be redeemed. It needs to be paid back. Aristotle recognised this, but he couldn't see how it was possible for God to do so. Didn't know about the Messiah. Didn't know about the Redeemer that would still come 500 years later. In the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. This was the greatest moment seen by the host of heaven. They've been waiting for this. The greatest moment or all the angels had long anticipated would come. And the moment, the day that Jesus came into the world, a multitude of angels were heard to say, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace. Goodwill toward men. This is a recognition that the sin that alienates us from God would have its separation redeemed. It would have that separation potentially joined together on all who believe the gospel. It's sin that alienates us from God. It's sin that separates man from God and condemned him to die. Forever separated from God in hell with the devil and his angels. But 
Light has come into the world. Light has come into the world. Jesus said, I am come a light into the world, that whosoever believeth on me should not abide in darkness. When Christ came into the world, he fulfilled the law of God. He lived the sinless life and died as a man, innocent of the charges laid against him by those he came to save. John 1.11 says, He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them, to them, gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Do you believe on his name? If you don't, will you? Will you believe in the name of the only begotten Son of God that you might, you might escape that third death? That third element of death. Jesus lived the life that we should have lived and died the death we should have died that we might have the victory over death. Shakespeare once wrote simply, we owe God a death. Not a debt. Shakespeare said, we owe God a death. (laughs) Jesus paid that death in his own flesh for us all. As we live with the penalty of sin hanging over our heads and weighing us down, we live already condemned to die and even die that second death. But God, Romans 5.8, I love that. But God, but God, I love it when it appears. But God commendeth his love toward us. In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died for us. Those who believe the gospel have victory over death. The sting of death can no longer worry them all their lives. There's an incredible passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'd encourage you to turn to it. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it's a, it's a passage in the Bible that speaks of the gospel itself that was handed down and then he answers the questions about, well, what sort of a body are we going to be receiving when we're in heaven? Which is a fascinating answer that he actually gives. But he says something else right towards the end of that passage. If Jesus Christ won for us the victory, if it's true that because of his sacrifice for sin and for the sin of the world... And the way to claim the gift is simply for yourself to believe that gospel, that good news, that Christ died for you. If that means that at your death you are immediately in heaven with Christ, is that not a victory? I think it's a victory. I think it's a victory. Have a look, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 51. Interesting. He talks, first of all, of that death that some will not experience, the second death, uh, the, the second one that I mentioned as far as the death is concerned, that separation of the soul from the body. He says, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. 
But thanks be to God which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labour is not in vain in the Lord. There is a victory over death, and it's a victory for all who trusted in Christ. Death is the transition. That's the transition. Death is the transition that takes place where all will receive to themselves that which they desired in life. It's really that simple. It really is that simple. At death, every single individual will receive to themselves that which they desired in life. But nobody desired help, Pastor. Every individual will receive the consequence of that which they desired in life. Those who are pleased to be near God will abide with him forever. Those who are pleased to be alienated from God will never know him again. Those who believe the gospel have won the victory over death. Those who will not believe it will suffer the second death for all eternity. Last point this morning. The end of death. The end of death. Short point. Verse 21. That as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus paid the price for the sins of the world. As such, death had no hold and has no hold on us. We have been liberated from death. We are free from the consequences of death, especially that second death. Today, the world believes that life and death are part of an ongoing cycle. Death will continue for as long as life continues because that is the way they've always known it to be. To those who experience the death of a loved one, we see that as unnatural and as surreal, almost dreamlike. And the Bible seems to present that to be exactly the case. Matter of fact, history seems to present that to be exactly the case. It doesn't seem natural and there's a reason why. And it's because death came into the world. Death came into the world and it did so by sin, the sin of man. The sin of one who was made from the beginning of creation until now. The result of this entire creation now groans and travails because of this death. This world, to this world, death will continue. To this world, death will continue, but the Bible actually teaches that death will one day have an end. Turn your Bibles to Revelation 21. You were there before. Turn back there again. Revelation 21. We'll begin from the first verse in the chapter. You can see again, and this is nothing but blessing, this one. These, these four verses, five verses, nothing but blessing. You'll see how things culminate in the end. Revelation 21 and verse 1. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men and he will dwell with them. And they shall be his people. And God himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. 
and there shall be no more death. Neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. We can't even begin to imagine what this new heaven and this new earth is going to look like. But we can understand that it's going to be a completely different constitution, a completely different makeup, a completely different environment, a completely different setup. But one thing that we can know for certain, according to the text here, is that there will be no more death. Death came into the world and it will be coming out of the world. It will not exist. You have to understand something just to get your head around this that you can comprehend. Remember I mentioned to you that they do not have an explanation for life. Philosophers, scientists around the world, they don't have an explanation for life, but they do understand death. Death can only happen to that which is alive. So you can have life without death, but you cannot have death without life. Make sense? You cannot have death without life, but you can have life without death. You can't have rust without steel, but you can have steel without rust. Okay? You can't have a flesh wound without the flesh, but you can have flesh without a flesh wound. Does that make sense? Okay? So death is an aberrant idea that came into this world and will one day see its way out. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're there just before you turn to this one. <coughs> 1 Corinthians 15. Verse 24. He's given the gospel, shared the gospel, spoken about this wonderful joy of the gospel. Verse 24, then cometh the end. When he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father. When he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. Death is an enemy. Death is an enemy that should be feared, especially amongst those who do not know Christ, especially amongst those who have not had their sins washed away, especially amongst those who are still alienated from God. Death should be the most fearful thing in their lives. And they should take no comfort whatsoever that their death will bring about any good thing. Job 19, 25-26, Job writes this. He said, For I know that my Redeemer liveth. Just to give you an idea, nothing in the book of Job speaks of Israel. Nothing in the book of Job gives any links to Israel. Everything about the book of Job indicates that it was a, well... Potentially a godless people. As far as his age is concerned, the Bible indicates that the book of Job is the oldest book in the Bible. As far as the years of his life would indicate, he seems to have lived around about the time of Abraham. Okay, This is Job. This is Job. And he, he writes this. Just after he wrote that his story would be written with an iron pen and live forever. And here we have it. For I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at that latter day upon the earth. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, 
yet in my flesh shall I see God. You don't have to wait to know if one day you will see God. You can know that your Redeemer liveth and you can know that your Redeemer liveth today. And it just takes that next step of faith. And that is to believe that Christ died for you and that you have life through him. That alienation that you had from God is no longer alienated. You are now sons of God. Children adopted into his kingdom. It's a free gift. It's a free gift. I don't think God could demonstrate his love for you any more than tell you that it's a free gift. You don't have to work for it. It's a gift. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, dear Lord, we give you thanks. That dear Lord, through a sombre understanding of the nature of the topic, there is joy, there is blessing, and there there is victory. And that all people may know the truth of this wonderful, wonderful message of the gospel of Christ. Why you came and why you died. And why you rose again from the death, defeating death. And yet again, dear Lord, there will be an ultimate enemy that will be defeated. And that is death. And there shall be no more in time to come. We thank you, dear Father, for this time. And I pray, dear Lord, that it would give many members pause. And many people who hear this message some consideration. And there is a time appointed. And I ask and pray, dear Lord, that they might be redeemed unto Christ today. In Jesus' name, we give you thanks. Amen. Amen.